Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, so uh, to get you thinking about today, I have a couple different scenarios. And here's what I want you to do is I want you to think about which one of these scenarios and their responses sounds most like you. And if you're with somebody, I want you to answer it for them. Okay, so you think this is how, if you're with your spouse or you're with a friend, I want you to think about, I think that this is how you would answer it. All right, so here we go. Scenario number one, uh, you are on the freeway, you see your exit, and there is a long line of cars in order to get off at that exit. And so you patiently wait for your turn to get off the freeway. And as you're getting to the very uh, end, you notice that a car stops in the lane next to you, puts on its blinker, and it wants to cut in front of you. Not that this has ever happened to any of us before, but here's the the re-responses. One, uh, you graciously let them in. You assume that it must have been an accident that they missed uh, their exit, and this is probably what Jesus would do, and so you would do it too. All right? So that's first response. Second response, uh, you ignore them. You try not to make any eye contact and pretend like you don't see that they're there. All right? Or option number three, you ride the bumper of the person in front of you while honking and explaining to the cutter that they are a low life and you will crash your car before you will let them in line. Okay, so go ahead and discuss real quick. Tell the person that you're with uh, which one you think would probably most likely be them. All right, I got another scenario. Another scenario. Here we go. Uh, Scenario number two is you are out to eat with your family, maybe some friends, and your order arrives, except it's not what you had ordered. Now, you don't hate what they brought, but you don't love it. You weren't really in the mood for that. That's just simply not what you wanted for dinner. Here are your three options. One, you let it go. You just eat the food that they brought you. It's not worth the hassle uh, to send it back. Option number two, you let them know, hey, you guys made a mistake. No big deal, though. I'll just eat this. You know, not not a problem. Or number three, you send it back and demand to speak with the manager and not so subtly hint that they should give you a free dessert for your troubles. Okay, so go ahead and discuss which of those sounds sounds like them. All right, here we go. Last scenario. Last scenario. Let's imagine it's a Saturday afternoon. You're sitting on your couch, and you look out the front window, and there is somebody who is walking their dog, and the dog stops on your lawn and begins to go number two, and when they're finished, they just start walking away. Here's your options. Number one, you don't do anything. You'll just let it go, and you'll pick it up when they leave. Option number two, you quickly take a picture of them and post it on next door, calling them out. (laughs) Or option number three, you run out, you stop them, you make them pick it up, even if they don't have a doggy bag with them. (laughs) Put it in your pocket, I don't care. Just not on my lawn, all right? So quickly discuss which of those three options you think is probably most like the person you're with or like you.
right, let me just survey the room. Um, who, who mostly answered number one as the way that they would respond in those scenarios? Okay, so you number one for you or for the person you're with, okay? Who responded number two for most of those scenarios, okay? All right, number three for the, so we have at least some honest people here this morning. Number three, okay. All right. So um, all of these are just different scenarios that you may encounter throughout regular life in which you have conflict. And I think there's a spectrum of the way that you handle conflict. And so on one end of the spectrum is people who, whenever there is conflict, they just lean in. They engage. It almost feels like they're looking for conflict, right? They're looking for a reason to get in an argument with someone. And I've seen these people. Uh, I'm in the middle of... um, like little league sports with my kids right now. And I have learned that there is a shortage of umps and refs for kids' sports these days because nobody wants to deal with the parents. I mean, they are ready to fight about every call, every foul, everything. They are just ready to go to battle. I saw recently a coach and the ump and parents almost get in a fist fight in the middle of a game. I apologized afterward. I said, I'm a pastor at Seacoast Grace. This is not the way Jesus would do it. No. So you have that on one side, right? These people are just ready to fight. And then you have the people on the other end who are just always, no matter what the conflict is, they just want to let it go. They don't want to deal with it. I don't want to get in the middle of it. I'm Switzerland. Don't bother me. We even have a We even have a phrase for this because it happens so often, especially amongst younger generation, is we call it ghosting people. I don't want to have to deal with the conflict. It's going to be uncomfortable. I know we've been friends for 10 years. I know we're engaged, but I just don't want to deal with it. And so I ghost them, meaning I don't return their phone calls, their text messages. I take a new route to work so I don't have to run into them. I mean, I will do anything in order to avoid conflict. And I think that both of these on the extremes are probably pretty unhealthy ways to resolve conflict. And so we have to find some place in the middle. We have to find this messy middle that we've got to live, especially in these areas of of conflict. Conflict is just going to be a a part of life. And so I, I don't think it's even a bad part. I think that healthy conflict strengthens relationships and it builds character and it builds faith. But unless we learn the art of healthy conflict, it also can have the opposite results is it can destroy relationships and character and faith. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at a story by what is considered a biblical hero in the Old Testament, King David. And King David, if you don't know about his history, you know, he defeated Goliath and he became the king of Israel and uh, he went to war. He was kind of a warrior king and he prospered financially and he brought peace among the nation. But David had a very fatal flaw. He wasn't good at conflict resolution. That was something that would end up being devastating to him and to the people around him. And so I want to look at this this scene in his life, or actually it's a series of events, in which he came into relational conflict and he didn't handle it well. So we're going to learn actually what not to do through David. So the scene is begins with uh, Israel is at war. And as they are going out to war, even though David is a warrior king, he decides he's going to sit back. He's fought enough battles. He's later on in life, and he's just not going to deal with it. And so as he is sitting in his palace, and he's overlooking his vast kingdom, he's on the roof, and he sees in a distance a woman bathing. And he says, I like that. I like her. 
He turns to his guys, he says, who is this woman over here? And they respond, well, that's Bathsheba, that's Uriah's wife. Now, a little background, Uriah is one of his guys, like his guys who has always had his back. When the previous king, Saul, was trying to kill David, this was one of the guys that put his life on the line to protect him. This is his wife. And so what does he do? He says, bring her to me. I'm the king, I get what I want, and that's what I want. And so he brings her into the palace He sleeps with her and then sends her off her way. Well, not long after this, he gets a message. And the message is from Bathsheba saying, I'm pregnant and the baby is yours. And the reason I know the baby is yours is because my husband Uriah is fighting on the front lines on your behalf and hasn't been home. And so the baby has to be yours. Now he's found himself in a predicament. What's he going to do? And so he comes up with this plan. He says, okay, uh, Uriah, I need you to come back from the front lines and just give me an update. Makes this up, of course. He has him back and he sends him home at the end of the uh, night of getting an update. And he says, you know, go home, be with your wife, enjoy yourself. Thinking then, you know, he'll sleep with his wife. And oh, by the way, if you haven't figured this out, it's going to be like a PG-13 slash rated R story. Okay. (laughs) So if you're like, if you need earmuffs, I'd be ready. All right. And so um, because Uriah is such a stand-up guy, he says, I don't feel right about going home and being in comfort and being with my wife. And so I'm going to sleep outside just like my guys are on the front line. Dave goes, okay, i got to come up with another plan. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. He has him back the next night. He says, let's have dinner. He gives him lots of wine. In fact, he gets him tons of wine. He gets him drunk and he thinks this is going to solve it. He's going to go home to his wife. I've got this whole thing covered up. Stand up dude, doesn't do it. So now he thinks, I'm running out of time. <clears throat> I've got to figure out a way to cover this up. And so what he does is he sends a letter to Joab, who is at the very front lines, his commander. And in it, it says, go and take Uriah to where the battle is the most fierce and then stand back and let him die. Yeah, he murders one of his friends. So he ends up dying. Bathsheba mourns for a little while. And then David ends up marrying her. And he thinks he's covered up the whole thing. He thinks, I've gotten away with it. Now, he may have gotten away with it, which nobody else around him saw what had happened. But there is somebody who knows always what's going on. God. God knows what took place. And so he can fool other people. He can't fool God. And so God sends this messenger, a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes, and he begins telling David the story. Instead of coming directly at David and confronting him with what happened, he begins telling him this parable. He said, you know, I heard the other day about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had tons of flock, tons of sheep, and and the poor man only had one. And it came time for the rich man to slaughter one of his sheep, and he decided he wasn't going to, that he didn't want to have to make that sacrifice. And so he went and he stole the sheep from the poor man, the only one that he had, and he slaughtered that one instead and destroyed him and his entire family. What do you think, David, should happen in this circumstance? And David is furious, and he responds, well, that man should die. And Nathan says, but that man is you. That's exactly what you did with Uriah's wife. Now, he realizes he's been caught. And he goes and he repents. And he stands before God and he says, look, I messed up big time. And God forgives him. But God also says, because I have forgiven you, we're in a right relationship. But that doesn't mean there's not consequences to your sin. That's just how sin works. Is You may be forgiven, but you're still going to have to deal with your mistakes. And so here's what he says. And this is a little bit weird, but I want you to pay attention to this because here is the punishment that David has. The first punishment is that the child that was born by Bathsheba dies. Here's the second one. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You should read the Bible. It's very interesting. Okay. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Remember that. So the next scene is we are introduced to a few of David's kids. Now remember, David has many wives and and concubines. And if we look at God's law, it says at the very beginning, it's one man, one woman together for a lifetime. And when you break God's design, the way that he's designed things, there's going to be problems. And we see the problems immediately in David's family. Because he has children by all of these different women, there's incredible family dysfunction. Probably more than you can imagine. Here's how they introduce the next people. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. It's getting a little Kentucky, okay? That's kind of what's happening here. (laughs) Is we have three siblings. We have Absalom and Tamar, their brother and sister. And then we have Amnon, who is their half-brother. And Amnon has now fallen in love. It's actually more like lust with his sister Tamar. And so he comes up with a plan. Him and his cousin decide, all right, how are we going to have this woman become mine? And their plan is that we're going to pretend like you're sick and invite her to your house in order to make you a meal so that you'll feel better. And when that happens, you're going to dismiss everyone, all of your servants from the room, and then she's going to be alone with you, which is what he does. And then he propositions her, and he says, Tamar, come to bed with me. But she says, whoa, we're brother and sister. That's weird, that's gross, and illegal. I'm not interested. But he doesn't take no for an answer. And so he abuses his sister. He takes her into his bedroom, And then when he's finished, he dismisses her in disgrace. She flees to her other brother, Absalom, and tells him what has happened and all the things has done. And he takes her into his household and and begins to care for her. And when David hears about this, his initial response is appropriate. says he's angry. Of course, he should be angry. That would be the correct response. The problem is, is he does nothing. He stays completely silent. He doesn't say anything to his sons, to his daughter, and we don't know why. Maybe because he feels regret and shame for the things that he's done, and so he doesn't want to bring it up because he'll feel like a hypocrite. We don't know what his motive is, but we do know that he said nothing and did nothing. So for the next two years, Absalom continues to care for his sister, and he stays silent. He doesn't bring up the issue. And we'll find out a little bit about his character because he, he's a man who is patient and he can plan. And so he plans a giant party a couple years later and he invites his father, David, and he says, why don't you and all of my brothers come to this giant party? And David says, I'm not going to come. I've got too many people. It'll be too overwhelming. But you go ahead and have the party with your brothers. He goes, okay, um, can I make sure that Amnon is there? Now, this is obvious. David, where are you at? Clearly, there's a problem here. It, it, there's tension. They haven't spoken. There's been a big family you know, uh, debacle. And David says, yeah, that's fine. And so here's what happens. He has this big party. All of his brothers are there. He gives them lots of food and lots of wine. And by the end of the night, when they've all had plenty of wine, he calls out his men. And in front of his entire family, he murders his brother. 
Now, the family begins to flee because they think that this is some kind of coup, that he's trying to take out the whole royal family so that he will be the heir, but he isn't. He just wants this one brother. Now, David initially hears that his entire family has been wiped out, but then he hears that his son Amnon has been killed by his other son Absalom. Absalom then goes and he flees to the country where his grandfather is the king and begins to hide. And so in one night, he has lost two sons. And here's what's crazy. After all of this, David's response is, he weeps, and then he does nothing. He, he doesn't do anything. He just continues to stay silent. A few years go by as Absalom is a, refuge, a refugee, and David begins to miss him. And Joab, his faithful commander, starts to see this, and he comes up with a plan how maybe he can bring these two to be reconciled again. And so his plan is that he's going to hire this actress, this wise woman who's going to come in and, and she's going to present a case to him in which he's got to decide. He's got to be the judge of. And so she comes in and she says, I have two sons and they were in a field and they got in a dispute and one of them killed the other one. And now the whole village wants revenge on this son and I'm afraid that I'm going to lose both. What should I do? And David's response is, well, you should forgive the one. Show mercy on him. And then she turns around and she goes, well, if you would forgive my son, why won't you forgive yours? David goes, has Joab been talking to you? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, he gets the point. And so he sends Joab off to Absalom to bring him back. And his whole entire household comes back to Jerusalem and moves in. And Absalom at this point is just longing to be in a relationship with his father. And so he is waiting patiently for them to meet and then be able to work out what's going on. And then David does something strange again. He does nothing. For two years, Absalom sits in Jerusalem waiting for a meeting with his father that never comes. In fact, Joab then begins to go silent on him. He can't get anybody's attention. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I will get their attention. Here's what he does. He then said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. He's saying, look, I don't want to stay in this in-between space. I don't want to have this relational disconnect. I would rather die than have this kind of conflict. So go and tell my father I want to meet with him. And so Joab does, and eventually the king grants his request. And after all this detail and all this drama, this would be like the climax, you would think. It's which they finally have this face-to-face -face meeting, and maybe they'll come and they'll resolve things. But there's only one line that tells us how the meeting goes. It says this. The king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That's it. We don't hear any kind of reconciliation, no conversation. They don't. In fact, we know that things didn't go the way that he wanted them to because his attitude goes from being reconciled with his father to now wanting revenge on his father. Remember, he's a patient man, and he has plans. And so now he begins to plan how he's going to get his father back. And so for the next four years, Absalom begins trying to win over the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. 
He sits at the city gates, and that's a place in which um, people come with their problems and their disputes, and he sits there, and he begins to help the people work through their conflict and find resolution, and then he begins to seed, uh, put seeds of doubt in people's mind, like, you know, we used to have a king who wasn't in a far-off palace, isolated from everyone, but actually cared and loved for his people and come, when was the last time you saw King David? And he's putting these seeds of rebellion into the people's minds. And eventually, when the time is right, he goes outside of the city of Jerusalem. He makes an announcement that he now is the king of Israel. And whoever is with him should stand up and rise against the king. And they do. And in that moment, a civil war starts between father and son. David knows that he has too many people against him. His family has turned against him. His nation has now turned against him. And so the people that are so loyal to him, they flee outside of the city into the wilderness. And Absalom comes into the palace and he takes it over. And remember that weird prophecy? Well, that's where it comes true. As he heads up to the palace roof where all of this began with this whole scene with Bathsheba. And he puts up a tent and he begins sleeping with his father's concubines in front of the entire nation. So that everybody can see so his father would be humiliated. There's one more thing that he has to do. If he's truly going to be king he has to defeat the former king and his army. And so against his advisor's recommendation, Absalom then starts to pursue David out into the wilderness. But remember, David is a warrior king. He's crafty. He might be old, but he knows his stuff. And he ambushes Absalom's army and ends up defeating them. And he has one command. He says, Joab, when you defeat them, I want you to bring my son back to me and not harmed. Well, Joab finds Absalom fleeing. Eventually he gets trapped. And instead of Joab bringing him back to David, he murders him. When David hears that they have won the war, there is not joy, there is not celebrating, there's only mourning. Not because of what was won, but because of what was lost. You know what's crazy about this story is a thousand years later, in this very same place, there would be a man named Jesus who would walk in and in one sentence, in this incredible insight and wisdom, he says, here's how this could have all been avoided. In one sentence, here's what he says. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This one sentence right here could have resolved all the conflict, the the division that was in his family and eventually ended in destruction and then the entire nation and all the lives that were lost. If they had just followed this one sentence, all of that could have been avoided. I want to break this sentence down. First, he starts with, if your brother sins against you, So this is what you got to do is you got to first acknowledge there is a problem here. Like you can't minimize it, but you also can't globalize it. So minimizing it is I'm pretending like there's no problem. Nobody was, Amy and I come from, this is like our family uh, origins and what we had to work through in our marriage is she comes from a family in which um, we we don't really want to have any conflict. They're very peaceful, very nice people, loving people. The kind of people you want to be around if you want to feel good about yourself. Love them. I come from a place in which when we wake up in the morning, we're going to fight. What are we fighting about? I don't know. We'll decide as we start fighting, right? We love conflict. We just think it's just part of our favorite hobby and pastime is we're going to fight. Let's fight about something. And so when her and I got into a relationship, we had to figure out, okay, you know, I come from this and you come from this. How are we going to navigate that? 
And so part of what we had to realize is, okay, we're not going to minimize things, pretend like there's not an issue and, you know, kind of shove it under the rug, but we're also not going to globalize things. And so there's some terminology that I've had to eliminate as we go into uh, our, what we call, we don't, we don't fight, we have discussions, when we are discussing things. I'm not allowed to say, you always, you never, everybody thinks, everybody is saying, no, no, no. What do you think? What do you feel? Where are you? I don't care about everybody else because not everybody's here and I'm not married to everybody else. I'm married to you. Now, what do you say? We have to really get to the core of what it is that we're in conflict about. What are we really upset about? Because I've also learned over the years that the thing that we're arguing about may not be the thing that we're actually arguing about. Like if I witness my wife crying because I forgot to take out the trash, I'm not that smart. I'm not emotionally intelligent, but I can kind of guess that she's not upset about the trash. There's something else going on here. There's something else that's at the core of our conflict. And so what is at the core of our conflict, both with me, what's at the core of my motivation to be in this conflict? Is it a pure motivation or am I just feeling disrespected and angry and insecure and fearful, maybe a little bit prideful, jealous? What's at the core of what's really happening here? Because I've got to get to that core if I want to find any kind of resolution. What do I believe that I deserve that I'm not getting? That's a great question. What's at the core? What, what do I believe I'm not getting that I should be getting? So uh, it's no secret around here that I love um, the Dr. Pimple Popper videos. <laughs> oh, I just find such peace in watching these videos. And I've been watching them for years. Um, in fact, I've kind of, I don't want to say I've graduated from them, but I have, uh, my, my friends and I, we send each other um, videos of which it's no longer cysts on people, but cysts on animals. Because I don't know if you know this, um, some of you guys are grossed out, this is not a big thing, uh, where like, like cows, their cysts are gallons of pus, not just a little bit. And it's like, it's amazing. You should see this. Please look it up. And so I have become somewhat of an expert on cysts over the years. And here's one of the things that I've learned. And by the way, you are so grossed out right now, but guess what? You will remember this illustration, and it'll save you a heartache. All right. You can't just deal with what's on the surface. you got to get to the core, and you got to clean it out. See, when it comes to these cysts, oh, yeah, yeah, you're with me. You're like, I know what he's saying. I've been there, Okay. When you deal with what's on the surface, you think, okay, temporary relief, that's great. But if you don't deal with what's underneath it, it's always going to come back. It's going to fester, and it may be worse next time. And so one of the things, like, when it comes to cysts is you can't just drain them. you got to get the sack out of there, too. you got to get the whole thing out, and you got to clean it out, and you got to make sure because it's going to come back if you don't. You're grossed out, but you're going to remember this. Next conflict you're in is you got to get to the core, and you got to clean it out. Yeah, okay, that's right. She wants me to move it on. I'm going to go even harder then. Okay, no. <laughs> You want the video? All right, here's the video. I actually have a cute, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Relax. Some of you guys are like, I'm out. <laughs> okay. Continue, John. He says, and, uh, go and tell him his fault. Now, when you read this at first, you think, that's the part I'm good at. I can tell people what they're doing wrong. It's one of my spiritual gifts. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that we have to take ownership. We have to take responsibility. Our natural disposition is to play the blame game. Well, you know, it's not my fault that they left. It's not my fault that they have an addiction. It's not my fault that the economy crashed. All of these things were outside of my control. It's really hard to take ownership, especially when we're in the middle of conflict. 
But if we're ever going to find any kind of resolution, it's not going to be through playing the blame game. One of the things, and the majority of the conflict that we experience, is it's almost always the result of someone not taking ownership. Conflict is, by and large, the result of someone not taking ownership. And because they didn't take ownership, now somebody else has to. When I'm irresponsible, it means that somebody else has to be responsible for my irresponsibility. So at a pastor, I heard this illustration years and years ago, and it's always stuck in my mind. He said, one of the things that I do with my kids in order to help them understand this principle that they have to take ownership is, whenever I walk around the house and I find something of theirs, it could be you know, laundry, it could be their toys, it could be trash that they just left, I will call them. And instead of me picking it up for them, or instead of me asking them to pick it up, I will say this. I will say, son or daughter of mine, I have found your towel on the ground. Will you please ask me to pick it up for you? And they'll, you know, want to just pick it up and just not deal with it. He goes, no, 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 don't you touch that. You've had your opportunity to touch it. You had your opportunity to pick it up. I want you to say, Father, I am too lazy And your time is not that valuable, and so I want you to pick this up for me. Say it to me. Now, yeah, I love it because it shows like, hey, this is actually what we're saying when we don't don't own our stuff. Now, I haven't tried it with my own kids yet because they have no shame. And they would have no problem saying it to me. But I think it's a good illustration of if you don't own it, especially things that you should own, somebody else is going to have to, and it's going to cause conflict. Jesus says, go and tell them. This is a, this is a proactive go. N- not only should you own your stuff, but you should own the process of reconciliation. And again, everything in our mind goes, no, 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 but they're the one who started it. No, no, you don't understand who I'm dealing with and their attitude. You don't understand the things that they've done. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's your job to go first. If we are followers of Jesus, think about Jesus' excuse for not reconciling us with our Heavenly Father. He could have looked at us and gone, I didn't sin. I was perfect. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't cause any of this to happen. And yet, I'm going to go first. I'm going to step out of heaven here on earth so that you could be reconciled with your Heavenly Father. So we're supposed to go first. What do I need to own? One of the most important questions you can ask in the middle of conflict is, what is mine? What is it that I need to own in this? And I've told you over the years, one of the things I do when I'm counseling, um, especially people who are about to get married, is we come up with what are called agreed upon expectations. And this is about who owns what in this relationship. Because if you decide who owns things now instead of later, it's going to help you avoid a lot of conflict. And so when it comes to paying the bills, you both should agree on the budget and you should be active, but is one of you guys want to be the primary person who pays the bills? Okay, then you're going to own that. Great. Uh, who's going to do the laundry? Or are you going to split it? Who's going to do that? Okay, you guys are going to split it. Okay. Uh, who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to turn off the lights? Who's going to? And we just go through everything because when you have agreed upon expectations, when you know who's going to own what, it really helps you avoid conflict in the future. And whenever we have conflict in um, our family, we say it's an opportunity to have future agreed upon expectations. Hey, I think we're having conflict because we didn't agree to something. And so let's use this as an opportunity to make a decision for the future. So next time we have this, we won't have to have a conflict anymore. It sounds great in your head. It does, it's, we're struggling, but it sounds, it's good. <laughs> he says, between you and him alone. This is one of the things that went really wrong with David. David 
continue to have these third parties involved in his conflict. So David should have owned up to Uriah, but instead Nathan had to get involved. And Amnon should have been confronted, but then Absalom had to get involved. And then Absalom should have been confronted, but then Joab had to get involved. And he had this really bad habit of triangulating. And some of us do this. Whenever we're in conflict, we go to everybody except for the person we're in conflict with. We go to our friends, we go to our family, we go to our spouse, we go to our coworkers, and we go, have you heard about what such and such did? You should be on my side. You should hate them like I hate them. Right? And we kind of get this little army against them. And what this is saying is, no, 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 no. If you want to have a resolution to this conflict, then you have to go face-to-face with them. Just you two. I get emails sometimes, uh, like weekly, about people who maybe disagree with me or don't like something that I have said and want to you know, tell me about it in an email. And I will almost always respond, but I will respond with, let's talk about this in person. When would you like to come into the office and meet? You know what's funny? No one ever does. No one ever does. They just want to shoot an email or a text or make a comment. But then when I respond back, they don't want to. And so here's what it tells me is you didn't actually want to have any kind of resolution of this conflict. You just wanted to shoot something out there to make yourself feel better. But if you really want to have resolution, it's got to be through face-to-face interaction. It's not text. It's not email. It's not phone. It's let's sit down and let's talk this through. And it says, if he listens to you, which how do you get somebody to listen to you? You start by saying it in a way that they can hear you. By, by communicating it in a way that they can be receptive. And so if you think about Nathan, he came with a, um, a parable. If you think about the wise woman, she came with a story. Because if they were going to come to David and they were just going to call him out, that could be dangerous. David could have reacted very badly. And also, he probably would have his defenses up and not heard it. And so I have three children. And one of my children, whenever there is some kind of disciplinary action, I can just come straight to him and go, hey, buddy. Here's what you did. You know better than that. And he'll go, yeah, you're right. And most of the time we can talk it out. I have another child, however, that if I come to her and I tell her, hey, here's what I think you did wrong, we're going to have a fight for the next three to five years. I mean, she just digs her heels in and it's just like, oh, I'm down to fight right now. It doesn't matter. So here's what I have to do with her. I have to come to her and go, hey, you know, I was just thinking... When you're a parent one day and you have a 10-year-old who does X, Y, and Z, what do you think is the appropriate response? Just curious. <laughs> because I know if I come at her, it's just going to be a battle. And so I've got to be able to approach it in a way that she can hear me. I've also got to be clear about what I am saying. Sometimes we get in the middle of these conversations and they're difficult and they're awkward and nobody really likes them. And then we try to soften it a little bit. We just don't exactly say what we think or what exactly is happening or we get a little fuzzy. There's a pastor who said, you got to say the last 10%. And so in our family, whenever we're having dialogue, especially as I was growing up, we would ask, now what's the last 10% you're not saying? Now, it's not an anger. We've got to be in the right place. But if we're really trying to resolve this and both parties are trying to figure this out, we go, now, what's the last 10%? Okay, so the last 10% is actually um, not these things over here that you didn't do. It's just, I don't feel like you're appreciating me in this area of our our life. Okay, well then let's talk about that last 10%. And he says, here's the result. If it all works, you've gained your brother. That's the win. Every time that we are about to enter into conflict, which again is not a bad thing. Conflict can be a really good thing if done correctly. Or we find ourselves in the middle of conflict. We need to ask ourselves, what is the win here? Because if you're anything like me, you'll enter into conflict and there is no win. It is pointless conflict. Have you ever, and I'm sure this never happened to you, have you ever 
had somebody who honked at you, yelled at you, told you that you're number one, um, and then you got home after that interaction on the road, and you just sat there and thought, you know, I think they're right. I am being selfish. <sighs> my attitude needs to change. The way that I drove is actually the way that I have been dealing with my family and some of the hurts. I really need it. No, you've never done that before. You have gone, just, I'm gonna, ooh, we're gonna fight, and we're gonna road rage, and it's gonna become an issue because there is no win in that conflict. Because the only way that that conflict, uh, the result of that conflict is you make them feel bad or they make you feel bad. You get to spit a little bit of venom at them and they have to take it. That's not a win. Especially as Christians, that's definitely not a win because the win for us is always reconciliation. We always enter into conflict or the way that we get out of conflict is we aim towards reconciliation. Many of the times that I find myself in conflict, I want to be right. But Jesus says, that's not the, that's not the win. Because remember, if we're going to be like Jesus, he was right. He's always right. And yet he went through an incredible amount of conflict in order for us to be reconciled. And so, next time you find yourself in the middle of a conflict, and you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, always remember the win is reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, um, conflict is inevitable. You experienced it in your own earthly life and ministry, and yet you had a higher calling. It wasn't to prove that you were right. It wasn't to prove that you were more powerful, that you were wiser, and you were all of those things. It's so that you could bring reconciliation. And so, Lord, we want to be people who bring reconciliation. First and foremost, reconciliation between God and man, but also between one another. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we head into this week, whatever conflict, big or small, we may experience, that we would be people who don't fight to be right, but fight to be reconciled. Jeremy, we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand with me? Thank you for being here this week, and we're going to have a great week. Be praying for all the VBS, all the kids, and all the volunteers. And if you're going to be here, I look forward to seeing you this week. Other than that, we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.